The Whole Health Cure with Dr. Sharon Berquist, the podcast that brings you inspiration and skills for living a healthy and fulfilled life. Welcome to the Whole Health Cure podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Sharon Berquist. On this podcast, we explore the science and provide inspiration and skills for living your happiest, most fulfilling, and healthiest life. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Brooklyn Borough President Eric Adams to talk about his health journey and how he's improving the health of Brooklynites. Eric Leroy Adams was born in the Brownsville neighborhood of Brooklyn. Eric earned an Associate in Arts degree in Data Processing from New York College of Technology, a Bachelor of Arts degree in Criminal Justice from John Jay College of Criminal Justice, and a Master of Public Administration degree from Marist College. Eric graduated from the New York uh, City Police Academy in 1984 as one of the highest ranked students in his class. During the course of his 22-year law enforcement career, Eric served in the 94th Precinct, 88th Precinct, and the 6th Precinct, serving Greenwich Village and West Village, where he retired at the rank of captain. Eric was elected to the first of four terms in the New York State Senate in 2006, where he represented a diverse range of neighborhoods across Brownstone and Central Brooklyn. During his tenure in the state legislature, he chaired both the Veterans, Homeland Security, and Military Affairs Committee, and the Racing, Gaming, and Wagering Committee. In 2013, Brooklyn H elected Eric as the first person of color to serve as their borough president. He's currently serving his second term as Brooklyn's chief executive. In 2016, Eric was diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. Having lost vision in his left eye and suffering from nerve damage in his hand and feet, he went against the initial recommendations of his doctors and pursued a whole food plant-based diet. Within three months, Eric reversed his diabetes diagnosis and he subsequently has been able to impact the health of countless New Yorkers facing chronic disease, including his own mother. Eric lives in Bedford-Stuyvesant, where he's resided for more than 20 years. He enjoys biking through his neighborhood, meditating, and exploring new cultures through travel. Eric is the proud father of Jordan, an aspiring filmmaker and graduate of American University. Eric, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. Thank you so much. And, you know, as I listen to you read that bio, uh, I, I'm going to create a failure section so that people can understand that life is not about our successes, but is our ability to move through the failures that we are going to experience on our journey and to see that we've all have them. Sometimes people think failures are unique to them, but I've had some bad moments in between those sentences of success. And I want people to know the bend of a road is not the end of the road. All you have to do is make the turn. Oh, what a great way to start. And, and what a wonderful perspective on bios. I don't think I've ever had a person have a failure section, but you couldn't be more correct because I think we sometimes learn more from the failures than we do from the successes. Erica, I want to first of all thank you for all your years in public service and the continuing changes you're implementing for the safety and welfare of New Yorkers. You've lived in Brooklyn your entire life. Let me start by asking you to um, kind of give our listeners who may not be familiar with the Brooklyn Borough a little bit of a description um, of Brooklyn. Yes, uh, uh, thank you for that. The uh, New York City has five counties. Uh, Brooklyn is one of them. It's the largest of all of the five counties. We have 2.6 million people. If we were a separate city, uh, we would be the third largest city in America. 
47% of Brooklynites speak a language other than English at home. So in other parts of the country, you would consider the position to be a county executive. My role is to make sure that my county uh, receives the proper amount of resources on the state level, the city level, and even on the federal level. So I'm the closest they have to communicating on local uh, government. And I do everything from managing whenever someone wants to develop in the borough, or we have a land use process, or we allocate capital dollars to different projects in the borough as well, which I focus a lot on education. And we're just a on the ground way of people to see their government actually operate in real time. Wow, that's great to put that in perspective. I think it's easy to forget just um, how, how many citizens live in New York and to put it in the perspective of other counties um, in the country. What do you love most about Brooklyn? The people. Uh, we are extremely diverse. Uh, we have this Brooklyn fusion going on. You can walk into a Chinese restaurant and have an Italian cook that's cooking you a Russian meal that he learned from his Jewish grandmother uh, that he would like to share with you. And so the energy of the various cultures come together, create something extremely unique and different. And Brooklyn is known for that. Uh, you'll see people living in different sections, the Crown High section of Brooklyn, for example, we have over 15,000 uh, members of the Hasidic Jewish community living among 150,000 uh, Caribbean Americans, African Americans, and a sprinkle of different other ethnic groups. And they live, although in their own enclave, but they, at the same time, they live in the same environment. So it's an amazing uh, energy of people coming together, and I just love it every day. Wow. And what motivated you to want to serve the people of Brooklyn? As a police officer, I started to see uh, that the tragedies I was experiencing and witnessing uh, in law enforcement, uh, I was getting the tail end of the problem. I started to see that when young people were unable to um, read and spell their names after they were arrested, or victims of domestic violence or victims of homelessness. I started to talk to people who were the victims of some of these failed policies and understood that it is about not just catching uh, the end of the process, but being part of the solution. Uh, Bishop, Archbishop Desmond Tutu said it best, and I paraphrase him by saying, we spend a lifetime pulling people out of the river. No one goes upstream and find out why they fell in, in the first place. So I wanted to go upstream and stop people from falling in the river. And that's why I went into politics to, to create policies around that. Yeah, you know, like so many problems, getting to the root cause often is the only way to really solve a problem instead of you know, just trying to address the issue at hand. Um, so that, that makes a lot of sense. Now, I was fortunate enough to get to hear your keynote address at the American College of Lifestyle Medicine conference last fall. And I got to hear firsthand about your journey um, your, through your own health issues and a little bit of a glimpse in how you've used that really as um, kind of this motivation to spread the word within you know, Brooklyn and beyond um, of 
you know, ways people can live healthier lives. Let me ask you, what made you realize that you may have developed a health condition? What was that first symptom that prompted that something was just different? And, it's, and, and it's, that's so important because oftentimes when you start to feel physical symptoms of something, you are at an advanced stage. And I knew, so, although I was experiencing tingling in my fingers and I was dealing with some vision complication that l later uh, went to the point of actually losing my sight in my left eye, but it was the uh, extreme discomfort I had in my stomach. I was out of the country when I was experiencing an extreme level of discomfort in my stomach. I thought it was colon cancer actually because it wasn't moved like gas would move. And I decided that you know it was time really to go uh, to my internist and try to find out what was happening. And that was really uh, the doorway to find out that I was getting ready to enter a real health crisis because my body was falling apart. And what did your internist do at that point? He sent me to get a, a colonoscopy and also to check my stomach at the same time. And after I came out from under sedation, uh, the uh, doctor stated that my colon was fine, but I had an ulcer. That was the original discomfort I was feeling. Uh, but he stated the real problem was my diabetes. I was in a dangerous coma, coma state that he was surprised. He said, he says, Eric, I'm surprised you're not in a coma right now. Your numbers are so high and the tingling you're feeling is permanent nerve damage that you have in your hands and your feet that's going to eventually lead to amputation. And he said, your vision loss, uh, you may lose your sight within a year or so because it's so severe. And little did I know that my diabetic state uh, was really the umbrella for all of the ailments that basically that I was feeling. Prior to this, had you ever had problems with your blood sugar or did this just come on out of the blue? Uh, I had no idea. You know, men and particularly those who played any real sports, you know, you have to drag us to the doctor. We're in the suck it up mode. Uh, you know, that's how men are. We have a culture of just, you know, ignore the pain. If you can't uh, operate through the pain that you're, you know, you're weak. And so God only knows what symptoms I ignored throughout the time, like the tingling. I just say, well, maybe my hands are falling asleep and that vision loss. I say, well, maybe I just need glass glasses. So you try to rationalize uh, the ailments that you're feeling. You want any excuse not to go and sit in that surgical chair, that doctor chair. And so I think <laughs> I was at that place. <laughs> I was just pushed right through. And, and you mentioned that your blood sugar at that point was almost in a comatose range. Um, can you put some of that in the context of some numbers? The, when the doctor said, stated it, he said my, my numbers was up in the 17s, the high teens. And for those who are not familiar, uh, having a blood sugar level 5.6 is, is, is really the normal. And when you get up to eight, you're in a really dangerous place. So I was not a spark. I was a blazing fire at that time. And it was really shocking. He stated that, Eric, you know, you're in really bad trouble right now. Yeah, I mean, to put it in, you know, perspective further, so this hemoglobin A1C, which averages three months of blood sugars, to be at 17 would be uh, really just such a sky high blood sugar where most people are hospitalized at that point. I, uh, I'm not even sure in my 27 years, I've seen a hemoglobin A1C 
quite that high. So you you may have had a personal record. Um, <laughs> that's not, that's not, I'm not proud of it. <laughs> that's kind of saying, not, not the kind you want, but... Um, <laughs> And, and so here they are with all these symptoms, you know, potentially life-threatening complications. So what was the plan that you and your doctor came up with? The doctor immediately uh, gave me my internist, who's a beautiful human being and really uh, one of those doctors that you enjoy being in a room with. Uh, he stated, Eric, I have to give you uh, insulin right away. And I'm going to give you three, two additional medicines for your diabetes, metformin, and another medicine. He said, I'm gonna give you medicine for your ulcer. I, got, I have to give you something uh, for your nerve damage, your high blood pressure, your cholesterol problems. So really just gave me, I, I went on a, a, a medicine regimen and I, you know, it just didn't resonate well with me. You know what was really fascinating I share often is that when he told me I was diabetic, a part of me for a moment said, well, you knew it was coming, Eric. You knew that it was only a matter of time. Your mother's diabetic. Your brothers and sisters are either diabetic or pre-diabetic. Uh, and we know, in the, particularly in the African-American community, we use the term, you know, they, you know, auntie has a little sugar. So we sweeten the terminology. And so I actually just sort of fell into, okay, now you're going to start the regimen of being a diabetic. But it wasn't until he said that, you know, you're going to lose your sight and lose some fingers that I said, wait a minute, I didn't sign up for this. <laughs> now we, we have to do something else. Wow. So you went from really, you know, nothing to, I think I lost track after five medications. So you walk out with this bag of prescription medications and, and you now you ended up taking a different approach. So where did um, you know that moment go from there? Like, how did you even begin to take into consideration that there may be a different way? You know, here you are, you know, being told that yes, your whole family has it. This is inevitable. You're going to have it. Here's the best way for you to, you know, keep yourself alive. Um, what you know, first of all, what were you thinking, and and how did that influence how you chose to take care of yourself? And that's such a great question because, you know, as a creature, we have a desire to be um, part of the group, part of the culture, to fall in. You know, we just don't want to be on the fringes or the outside. We naturally want to, want to be a part of. And I thought I was, uh, my my desire was to seek help within still the framework. I went to five other of the top doctors in New York, endocrinologists, and they all just kept giving me the same thing. I was hoping that I would hear something different, a ray of hope. And I remember the day like it was yesterday of having the insulin, the needle, the medicine all on the table next to my laptop with the pamphlet that stated living with diabetes. And I remember going to Google and instead of typing living with diabetes, I typed reversing diabetes. And if I would have gone down the road of living with diabetes to learn more, I would not be here right now looking at this screen. One word was the difference in the direction that I took. Reversing diabetes put me on a pathway 
of reversing all my ailments. And it was only that one word difference that made that determination. And that, I, I often think about that moment. Well, like so many moments in life that kind of alter the course of where we go, it, it's like that one little thing that, that ends up making such a difference. You've got five consults, top doctors in New York, and in New York certainly has some of the top doctors in the country, and not one brought up this potential of reversing the disease. Is, is that accurate? Not one, not one. They all, it was clear. And what was fascinating, there was a question that I asked all of them that no one was able to give me the right answer. I said, how did I get diabetes? They said, some told me it was hereditary. Others said that, you know, because I was eating too much sugar. Another said I had too many carbs in my diet. I, had, I got all of these mixed assortments. So the mere fact that I was getting different answers, something clicked in me. You know, I'm not a doctor, but I'm an ex-cop and I know how to do investigations. <laughs> and, I said, and I said, listen, something is just not right with this storyline that everyone is giving me different uh, reasons for having diabetes. And so I wanted to do my own investigation. Yeah, and it's great that you did. And, you know, it certainly also speaks to the power of information in this era where, um, you know, you really can be empowered to find out a lot of information, um, you know, on your own. And, and so you Google reversing diabetes. What's the first thing that popped up on your Google search? Uh, 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 Dr. Esselton, then Dr. Gregor, Dr. Bonner, Dr. Uh, Dean Ornish. And I started reading this stuff. And I was expecting to see that, and, you know, NASA found a man on Mars. You know, I was like, <laughs> is this real? <laughs> no, I, mean, I mean, it was just mind boggling that why, I, I said to myself, why aren't other doctors saying this? And I just couldn't believe what I was reading. And the, there was this mixed emotion. There was an emotion of, a life raft is like being in the sea alone and just knowing the inevitability of death and all of a sudden seeing that ship out there that you're going to be saved. And then a, a feeling of betrayal settled in. I said, how many of my family members did I lose to a chronic disease, you know, that never had the option? Not everyone is going to do what I did, but darn it, they deserve the option. We should be able to make the choice and, and that anger sort of hit me. And I guess I turned that anger into dedication and commitment to make sure that as many people as possible are allowed to have the option to make the decision. Yeah, here, here, you know, I, I couldn't agree with you more about the importance of just even presenting the information and, and leveling that playing field with, um, you know, using medications. And, and as you read about, you know, the, the possibility of reversing diabetes, what were the um, specific things that you found that you could do to turn around your illness? After uh, I called Dr. Esselton, he was in Ohio at the Cleveland Clinic, and I flew down to see him one day, and he gave me instructions. And I remember as we were talking, uh, he told me to, 
uh, you know, stop eating certain meats. And I said to myself, what is wrong with this nut? <laughs> you know, I'm going blind and he's telling me to stop eating chicken and steak. But I had nothing to lose. And when I returned to the city, I looked at my fridge and I, you know, it's amazing that we, you can uh, see many things, but comprehending what you see is so important. And I started to look at the food. Everything was processed. Uh, everything was oily and fatty and filled with all of these products. And I, it started to, you know, really resonate with me that this is what he was talking about. And so I dumped out all the food and just started anew and just started eating healthy. In the beginning, it was, it was challenging because I was not a cook at all and my food was horrendous. I used to make a, a breakfast made out of flax seeds without grinding them, you know, so. Oh. <laughs> you know, wow. but I pushed through it and I started to see the results within three weeks when my sight returned, I was just amazed. Wow, so in that, that amount of time, so that's a pretty short amount of time, um, your sight improved, what else did you feel that was different when you made such a big change? The, the, the bloatiness that I felt, the lethargic feeling in the morning, the constant constipation, the the always feeling tired in the middle of the day, you know, just my body just, just was, there was just something not right. Although I normalized the discomfort of my body inside me, I knew that my body's better than this. And I dismissed it as, hey, you're getting older. You know, people say you're not as young as you used to be. That is so untrue. You know, you, we, we are as young as we used to be. And we could continue to have that very uh, vibrant life and uh, being able to shed uh, those pounds of toxic food. Within the three months, I dropped 35 pounds. Uh, my body just felt amazing uh, after. And it just was a great experience of learning different foods, different spices, uh, learning the power of food. And then starting this mental journey attached to it, it opened the door to you know the power of meditation, the power of doing internally healing, because our body is our physical presence, but our soul, there's an anatomy of our soul that we need to also make sure that's healthy. And I started to doing it holistically. And it's just a beautiful place to be. And it's almost Shakespearean tragedy that so many people are not living their true self. And we, we need to really push and help people get to their true selves. Gosh, you know, that is so beautifully put where oftentimes, you know, you try and make changes in one area of trying to feel better. And it really kind of opens that door to so many other ways where your mind, body, and soul all come together. And, and it's really transformative as you're describing and, and so you, in three months, you lose 35 pounds, you feel so much better, all these complications that you were told um, you know, would progress unless you're on medication are starting to reverse. And, and you are now trying to learn to cook. And now that was in 2016, right? So we're almost four years into this. Yes. 
have you been able to maintain this? Because that's not easy to do. No chicken, no processed food. I mean, it's pretty restrictive. Um, how has the past four years been for you? It's, 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 a, it's a great question because, you know, you, for, for me, I knew there was no going back. It was a lifestyle change. I was not on a diet. I changed my life. And because of the results, that's beautiful about a plant-based diet. The results come so fast <coughs> that you're not waiting and get frustrated. And I fell into the groove. Because it was a lifestyle change, I slowly learned how to cook. I would cook one meal a day and master it and then add it to my repertoire of meals. I started to delve into learning one spice a day, learning where, where, where it uh, derived from, how to use it in a meal, what's the power, what are the healing powers. I became knowledgeable and smarter about food. And then I started uh, partnering with um, how does it impact your body? What does your body need? And for the first time, what I was doing with my BMW, I started doing with my food. You couldn't put bad gas or oil into my car. And I did so much attention on how great my car ran. I said, I'm going to refocus that same energy and attention. And what I put in that car, I'm going to put it in my body. My mechanic was not allowed to do anything on my car without my instructions. My doctors can't do anything to my body without my instructions. And I'm going to know what they're doing. Wow. And, and, you know, with the time we have left, I, I just want you to give us a sample of some of the things you have turned around and now done for, for Brooklyn and in, in how you are trying to help other people understand that they can make such a difference in their health. It's about purpose. And I don't think anything is more powerful than when we find our purpose. And, you know, my mother told me as a child, if you're fortunate to live long enough, you're going to be unfortunate to experience pain. So you must realize how to turn pain into purpose. And now I'm living a purposeful driven life. And so we are showing how others can live a healthy lifestyle. One of the things we're extremely proud about is putting in place at Bellevue Hospital, symbolically, the oldest hospital in America is having the first uh, lifestyle medicine clinic where people are coming in and learning how to reverse their diseases. And the city is now looking at how to duplicate this uh, throughout our entire city. This is an amazing accomplishment that my good friend, Dr. McMacken, uh, really pushed to get done. And I'm so proud of what we have done there. But we're also looking at how do we turn food and feeding food uh, and change the system of feeding food by doing what's called uh, Meatless Mondays. We started in our schools, we started in our hospitals and other agencies. And we want to expand that from Meatless Mondays to Meatless Mondays through Friday. We were able to get the city to stop purchasing processed meat. We also were able to get the city to uh, cut their beef production by 50%. Eventually, we believe we're going to cycle out of beef production at all. Here's what I'm saying to our cities. I can't stop Mr. Jones from putting a hamburger on his grill at home. But you know what? You're not going to be unhealthy on taxpayers' dime. 
we need to make sure every meal we feed people in hospitals, in jails, in schools, in senior centers, everywhere the cities and states feed people, it should be healthy food. You're not getting sick on a dime of taxpayers, and then the taxpayers have to pay for your health care in the same time. Can't be that way anymore. It's about we're going to feed you, we're going to make you healthy, and if you decide not to follow the direction that we're leading by example, then that's your decision, but it's not going to be on our dime. Well, you know, you, the purpose that you, I hear in your voice is just tremendous. And, and to be able to implement that, you know, as you described, in, in an area where there's so much cultural diversity, where, you know, people, you know, kind of cook with different ethnic backgrounds. There are certainly cultural preferences people have. I imagine, you know, it's so challenging for you to be able to do it there as a location. Um, you know, it just really opens the door for so many other communities to be able to do the same. It does. It, it really does. Because, you know, we put so much energy on uh, just treating the symptoms. The real energy we're switching to is make food palatable to the cultural differences of people. It's not that people like steak. They like the taste of steak based on their cultural norm, which mostly are the spices. And so if you gave someone a raw steak or raw chicken or without any spice on it, they won't enjoy it. People don't realize what they're really, what they're enjoying is number one, they're enjoying the different spices, which are more powerful often than the food. The food that we're putting the spices on is taking away the advantages of the health of those spices. Second, we're showing people how to shop affordable. Even if you have to go to a local grocery store, a local bodega, we call it here, uh, you can see different products within that store that is more healthy to use. A dry bag of lentils can make a lentil burger, can make lentil soups, uh, can make a lentil casserole. So we are educating people on, on how to look at the food that's in front of them and make the right food choices, how to read labels, uh, how to uh, shop in a, in a store, how not to be victimized by how some of the hidden dangerous secrets. So that's our goal, a smarter consumer that they can understand, they can still enjoy the taste that they're looking for, but they can be healthy in the process. And you know, you are incredibly, you know, busy and so many people just say, I don't have time, you know, this takes too much work, too much effort, I'll do tomorrow, um, you know, or revert to more convenient options. Can you just briefly walk us through your day, kind of how you get your meals, how you get your exercise, just to kind of picture how this can be done with someone who is managing, you know, a, a borough with you know, over two and a half million people. And, and if you can do it, by gosh, most of us should be able to do this. <laughs> it's, 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 it's preparation. Uh, I prep my food in the beginning of the week. I do all my chopping. I have everything ready for me. I put it in canisters. So as I move throughout the week, I don't have to chop up my kale. I already have it chopped up. I don't have to chop up my celery. It's already chopped up. I will freeze after making my different dishes. Those that I can freeze, I will put in the freezer and have them ready so that I can, you know, be pre prepared. Because the more prepared we are, the easier it is. Second, which I think is extremely important, I don't, I used to build my food around my life. Now I build my life around my food. 
I take care of my nutritional needs. You're not going to uh, drive your car without stopping at the service station first and fueling up. Fuel up your body. And anyone that's in your life that don't that that doesn't understand the importance of you fueling and getting the, your nutritional needs, then they're not really there for your well-being. And find new friends and new associates. And and lastly, which is most important. I make sure that I enjoy the food I eat. Sundays are my ex exploration days. I spend the sunny Sunday learning new meals, new ways of cooking things. So I'm already prepared. That's how I enjoy and stay connected to my food and the appreciation of my food. So when I make a lentil stew, I know every item in that stew and I know what it's going to do for my body nutritionally. So when I eat it, not only am I enjoying the physical taste, I'm enjoying the mental uh, stimulus of saying that, hey, hey, you know, get ready lungs, because here it comes, you know, here this brain food is coming your way. So it's a, it's a different relationship I have with food. And it is an unbelievable experience that I am going to do all that is possible to have everyone enjoy this journey. Wow, Eric, you know, thank you so much for sharing that and, and you know, what you've done for yourself, um, kind of taking upon yourself to learn so much and then converting that into such a different lifestyle and then, you know, making sure others are aware of this has just been tremendous. Um, is there anything else you'd, you'd like to add? I know more than that. This is, it's, it's, a, it's a journey. There's nothing special about me. And if you read through the bio, as I stated, you'll see the failures are no different than anyone uh, else's. Uh, we've all had difficult times and difficult journeys. And we're all going to transition one day from the physical to the spiritual. We should just not do it with our hands. And life is challenging enough. Don't let your chronic diseases be part of those challenges. They are avoidable and we can do it together, and we're going to continue to fight to build that coalition to do it together. Uh, here, here. Eric, thank you so much for, for taking the time to share um, your journey and so much about your work and your life with us. Um, I really appreciate it. Thank you, be well, take care. Thank you too, bye-bye. The Whole Health Cure is brought to you by Emory Lifestyle Medicine and Wellness. For more information about wellness assessments, classes, and other resources, please visit our website, emoryhealthcare.org livewell. This material is copyrighted by Emory University.